You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. If you or your patients struggle with muscle cramps, spasms, soreness, or restless leg syndrome, you're going to want to hear about our non-opioid TheraWorks Relief. TheraWorks Relief is a clinically proven and published locally acting topical solution that prevents and relieves muscle cramps, spasms, and soreness in the legs and feet. In a research study including patients diagnosed with restless leg syndrome, TheraWorks Relief was shown to reduce symptoms commonly associated with accompanying RLS, including muscle cramps and spasms. Muscle cramps are reported as a side effect of hundreds of prescription medications, from intravenous iron sucrose and conjugated estrogens to statins and diuretics. By managing muscle cramps, TheraWorks Relief supports adherence, helping patients stay on important and often life-saving medications. TheraWorks Relief comes in an easy-to-use, fast-absorbing, non-greasy foam that can prevent muscle cramps and spasms with just a few simple applications a day. To learn more about TheraWorks Relief, go to theraworksrelief.com and click on the Healthcare Professional link. No one has ever made an impact by standing on the sidelines, whimpering, complaining, or protesting without taking action. We make progress by implementing our ideas. Pharmacists must take action. This is Polititalk Rx, the highly charged, sometimes controversial, political internet radio talk show dedicated to the profession of pharmacy. The policies that shape our healthcare system are complex and pharmacists, pharmacy professionals, and industry stakeholders must have a seat at the table to participate in conversations, discussions, and debates, which lead to actions that drive change supporting the profession of pharmacy. This podcast is intended to shake up the status quo and promote change to promote the profession of pharmacy while advocating for better patient care delivered by pharmacists. Polititalk Rx is part of the U.S. healthcare system's largest and most influential network of podcasts dedicated to our profession, the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Scott Chelson, host of Polititalk Rx. We have a very, very special show today. We have Congressman Buddy Carter, Georgia's first congressional district. Uh, Congressman, a real bulldog out of the University of Georgia and very, very special the only pharmacist in Congress. So thank you so much, Representative Carter. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate having you on today and and being part of our show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, we are a, uh, this show, Polititalk Rx, is a a very direct to consumer. Uh, We really are wanting to engage uh, the, the individuals that don't understand the politics that are going on, or even the individuals that do understand it and get it, have been following up with it, but need that spark, need that extra information. So some of the things we're going to talk about today, and I know you and I have discussed a little bit, but um, I've been seeing a lot of you. I just was talking to you about seeing you in, in, in Boston recently and having the opportunity to just watch you speak about drug pricing. So I'm very interested to talk with you about that. The other area I know that is of interest to many pharmacists, and I would hope for many patients, uh, would be PBMs. And, uh, and lastly, and definitely not least, would be opioids. So uh, I, I look forward to this conversation with you. And, uh, and, and I guess let's jump in. Um, I, I really want to get into, I guess, the, uh, the heavy or the, the more dense of the conversation. Let's talk about PBM for a second. I want to know, sure, sure. know, first of all, tell me your, your one-liner of what your thoughts are on PBMs. 
Well, my one-liner would have to do with PBMs would be that right now prescription drug pricing is one of the one of the many challenges that we have in this country that's impacting so many of our uh, of, uh, of our citizens. And I've always said that the most immediate, the most um, significant impact that we can have on prescription drug pricing is to have transparency within the drug chain, within the, the pricing chain. And that means that we would have transparency with the PBMs. Right now, the PBMs have no transparency whatsoever. I would submit to you that the PBMs bring no value whatsoever to the healthcare system and, and to drug pricing. Now, if you look at their website or if you ask their company, what's your mission? What, are you, what do you exist for? They will tell you, we exist to keep drug prices low. Well, my question is, how's that working out for you? it obviously is not working out very well at all. They are not keeping drug prices uh, low. In fact, I would submit that they are the primary reason that drug prices are so high. Just one quick example would be whenever we had the, the pricing um, situation with EpiPens and we had Myelin Pharmaceuticals that uh, manufactured the EpiPens. At that time, I was on the oversight committee and I actually had the opportunity to ask Heather Bresch, the CEO of of um, Myelin Pharmaceuticals. Okay, Ms. Bresch, you're the beginning. You're the, you're the manufacturer. I'm the end. I'm the pharmacist. You make it, I dispense it. Okay, and I asked her, I said, when it leaves you, how much does it cost? Now, I have no reason but to believe her. And she told me, when it leaves me, it costs $150. And I said, okay, when it gets to me, it's $600. What happened in between? That, that's what we need to know. What happened in between that $150 and that $600? That's where we need transparency. That's why we need transparency. And, we, and could do, we could address, I'm sorry, no, and we I could address say, prescription drug prices. Well, I was going to say, you know, going back on that, you know, you're talking about uh, the money because one of the things that a lot of, a lot of the conversations that happen is we talk about drug pricing and then the argument always is, well, it's, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of things, marketing and so forth that needs to be done to get it to the right patients and so on. But you're actually talking about after the fact. And I think that's a really, yes. really strong point to be made. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that is important. Now, look, I, I've been practicing pharmacy since 1980, and I've seen nothing less than miracles that have come about as a result of research and development that have been done by pharmaceutical manufacturers. Uh, I can remember when I started practicing, if you had, um, you know, there were certain we can we can treat with prescriptions and keep you out of the hospital. I can remember an antibiotic that you had to take 40 tetracycline and take one capsule four times a day, whereas now, you know, we've got antibiotics. You can take one a day for four days and you're cured. Uh, and and that's the kind of significant. I mean, we talk about the price of Solvaldi, and that is an expensive drug, $85,000. But then think about it for just a second. Through research and development, we cured. We cured hepatitis C. I mean, at one if you were diagnosed with hepatitis C, you probably weren't going to live. Well, we cured it through research and development. Now, I applaud the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers for what they have done with research and development, but they need to do a better job as well. They need to do a better job of, their, uh, of pricing their prescriptions. Having said that, I will tell you, EBMs do with research and development. They do absolutely nothing. None of their profits go into research and development. At least some of the profits of the pharmaceutical manufacturers go into research and development. 
for the third party or for the um, PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers, the middlemen, none of that goes into research and development. And, and you know, it's, it's crazy that you say that. And, you know, the, one of the biggest things that we face in, in health insurance, as you know, is the lack of transparency across the board anyways, right? Like we always hear that um, premiums are going up because our profits were reduced. But if we don't have a baseline of where those profits started because there's no transparency, how can we actually regulate that? And I think that's one of the that's things. An, that, that's an excellent point. I mean, you're, that's why transparency is so important. Now, the PBMs will tell you, uh, when you ask them, what do you do with your rebates? Well, we return uh, a lot of it to the, to, to the companies so that they can decrease the premiums. Okay, well, show me. That, that's all I'm asking is, is to see that. Well, well, you know, they don't want to show that. They, and if I saw that, then, then certainly, you know, I'd be satisfied. But, but they don't show you that. And I would submit to you that that is not the case. I'll give you an example. The, the number one PBM in the nation. Caremark. In 2016, they had total revenues that exceeded that of McDonald's, of Ford Motor Company, and Pfizer Pharmaceuticals combined. They had total revenues that exceeded Ford, McDonald's, and Pfizer Pharmaceuticals combined. Now, look, I'm not against anybody making money. I, I, this is America. We believe in capitalism and more power to them. But tell me what value it brought to the healthcare system. It brought no value whatsoever to it. All it did was line the pockets of, uh, of the stockholders. Now, what about with, you're talking about independent, because to be honest with you, I think there's companies out there, independent pharmacies and even franchises. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, franchise Benzer, um, but there's companies mm-hmm. out there that are really doing a great job on the independent side and really being able to individualize healthcare, which you and I can both agree that's what's necessary. Uh, we've too much you know, had this kind of broad brush for everybody. Um, so, you know, is it hurting? Would you specifically say that the PBMs directly hurt independent pharmacies from doing their job? Oh, there's no question about it. And I'll give you a perfect example. There's, I have legislation now addressing the gag clause. Did you know that an independent pharmacist, because of contracts that they have with the PBMs, cannot tell a patient that if you were to pay cash for this, then you could save money on it? It was that if you paid cash, it'd be lower than your copayment. There are agreements whenever an independent pharmacy signs an agreement with the third party, signs a contract with them, there's a gag clause in there that says that they cannot offer that to the patient. They cannot tell them that. If they do, then they'll be penalized or they'll be kicked out of the, uh, out of the network. Now, that's ludicrous. Why can't I tell a patient who I'm taking care of, if I'm a pharmacist, why can't you tell them that, hey, if you pay for this, it's only going to be $20, but if you pay your copay, it's going to be $50. So you could save $30 right here just by paying cash for it. That's that's just ludicrous. It's crazy because even the word gag, I mean, if we look at the definition, a piece of cloth or put over put in over a person's mouth to prevent them from speaking or crying out. I think that's what pharmacists have been trying to do for many years is cry out with everything that we know we can do. It's just, we've been limited to do so. And with that, I would like to jump into, uh, and I know we didn't really discuss a little bit beforehand, but I know you've been a huge advocate for provider status. I actually went up to yes. visit one of your colleagues, uh, Senator Bill Cassidy. And mm-hmm. I, great guy, and yeah, very great guy. I sat with him. We talked about opioids, which we'll discuss in a second. Um, I actually got him to look at some language for labeling of opioids because in uh, Utah they did a great job. They made a state legislation that all opioids had to have a warning label on the top of them. 
so that, you know, you had proper storage and education on a website and so on. But one of the things he didn't, he didn't really understand was a provider status. And I, he said, don't you guys already get paid to consult with patients? And I told him that, <laughs> exactly, you're laughing. Um, but I was telling him that, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for us to get paid. And that's not really the, the major aspect here. I think the, the major aspect here is being recognized as a provider so that we can truly be part of the healthcare system. So would you talk to me a little bit about provider status and the movement that we have uh, forward with value-based care and how that all plays into each other? Well, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, the reason that it's such a surprise, I think, to a lot of my colleagues who who don't really understand pharmacy or healthcare. So although Dr. Cassidy certainly understands it, our Senator Cassidy certainly understands it. But at the same time, I think a lot of the reason why is because it's something we've been doing forever. I mean, we've always been counseling. Pharmacists have done it. We just haven't been compensated for it. And now it's time that we were compensated for it, like all the other healthcare professionals out there who are being compensated for their professional work, being compensated by Medicare or, or by whoever, primarily by Medicare. And that's where why we need provider status. I, we've got a number of signatures, a number of co-sponsors on that bill, a number in the House and in the Senate, far more than, than we need to bring the bill to the floor and to have it voted on. We've got to identify a, a funding mechanism. Now, we're because our budget is so tight now, we're not going to be able to, to just add on uh, something like that without offsetting some kind of uh, revenue somewhere else. Um, and right now we're waiting on the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, to come up with a score on it, how much it would cost if we were to to have pharmacists or provider status where pharmacists were reimbursed. But this is something that I feel like is the future of our profession. And I think it's very appropriate now that we're dealing with the opioid situation and the opioid epidemic in our country because pharmacists play an important role in that. We are the last line of defense when it comes to the opioid prescriptions, and we need to be compensated through the provider status for that work that we do and that counseling that we do. Well, let me ask you a question about that, and, and I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate on both sides. Uh, I've met a lot of pharmacists, and I'm sure you have as well, that actually didn't want anything to do with the responsibility around opioids. And again, we'll get into opioids for a second, but even other prescriptions. And, and some of them don't want the extra responsibility. Now, I would say there's bad apples in every profession. We both know that, especially with what we've seen with the opioids. Because um, I agree with you. I think that we're the last line of defense. We should be at the, at the forefront of that. Um, but wouldn't you say that you know states that have like prescription formularies for pharmacists to be able to utilize didn't utilize those. And it's kind of like when you don't you, you use your power, you lose your power. And we're now trying to take all this responsibility on. Do you think that's one of the barriers? And then also, how much do you think, because I've heard this, how much do you think that, uh, that it is that providers feel that we're wanting to open up our own practices? Because the last people that got provider status were your you know, your physician's assistants and your nurse practitioners. What, what would you say in regards to both of those? Well, first of all, I would say that um, I believe it's inevitable. I believe that those who are saying, no, we don't want that responsibility, I, I believe that they're missing the boat because to me, this is the future of our profession. Uh, and we, we have to accept that we're going to have to take more responsibility. And with that comes, uh, you know, comes other things that perhaps we don't necessarily welcome, but we just have to accept it. 
Now, I will say that, you know, I graduated from the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy in 1980. And I will tell you, the students who are graduating today and that have been graduating for many years now are far superior in their clinical skills than, than what I was trained in. And I, it's just so impressive what they do. I, I've always said that pharmacists are some of the most overtrained and underutilized professionals that are out there. And I will add this, if we're ever going to get our healthcare costs under control, we've got to utilize all of these different medical professions, um, especially pharmacy. And this is, a, you know, the, the old day of where the doctor, you know, everything flowed through the doctor. Well, it still flows through the doctor. The doctor remains the quarterback, remains the captain of the team. But now you've got, as you mentioned, physician's assistants and, and others who are doing so much more now. And pharmacists have to accept that that's going to be the case with us. So let me ask you this. Actually, some of the things that we were proposing here in the state, and I know the AMA and CDC have uh, made documentation and, and their uh, feedback on this, but collaborative practice agreements. Um, you know, one of the things that I proposed is having collaborative practice agreements. And, and you know, let's uh, obviously we need provider status. But one of the things I think would be, I guess, more welcoming to that would be when you have an engagement through a collaborative practice so that, like you said, that that physician is the quarterback. But when we're engaged in a, poly, a, a protocol with that physician, um, we would then have the ability to have temporary provider status. Um, and the reason I, I, I talk about that a lot is because I think that state by state, we can start to recognize providers on this level. And the other side of it is that I think it gives trust back into the provider that it's not just having your pharmacist that thinks every plant or nutraceutical in their pharmacy will cure cancer and not having that marijuana physician that lost his board engaged in a protocol. I was also talking about having the boards of medicine uh, kind of run or um, I guess you say approve protocols in, in the state. I know this is on a state level, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are so that we can actually keep that physician as a quarterback and ensure that the right pharmacists are working with the right physicians. Oh, there's no question about it. And there are some states who have made quite a bit of progress with collaborative practice and, and, and collaborative agreements with, with physicians. And, and I applaud those states. I think we've got some real leaders out there who are showing us the way in, in, in the future of healthcare. Think about it. Um, you know, if you go to a hospital anymore in the morning, remember when the doctor used to make rounds by himself? Well, now there's a team that's making the rounds. And a pharmacist is an integral part of that team. Absolutely. And, you know, the physicians look to the pharmacist for their expertise and they, they expect for the pharmacist to be there. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that speaks well of physicians and of pharmacists. I mean, let's face it, um, you know, none of us know everything. Um, you know, and it's just very important that we all work together. That's why I think collaborative practice and, and, and again, we acknowledge that this quarterback or the, the doctor remains the quarterback and remains the captain. But listen, we've got a, a lot to bring to the table as well. I've always said um, none of us is as smart as all of us. Well, and, and I absolutely agree with you, and I appreciate everything you're saying about that. I want to jump into opioids for a second. Um, as we were discussing, you know, opioids, have, have it's, it's the nation's biggest theme, I would say, and, and it's declining our, our, uh, our aging, and, and I think it's a, a huge uh, focus of all of ours. Uh, down here in Broward, in Broward County, Florida, we've ha we have a community response team. The same community response team that was involved in going to China to reduce uh, the flock of production in, in China uh, now working on opioids. 
give me, give me your work. Give me, you know, talk to me about what you've done and what needs to be done as a solution, because I think there's going to be more families uh, dying, losing friends, losing family members. Uh, I lost my mom in 2009 to an opioid overdose. You know, I've been a huge, huge fighter against the uh, epidemic. So I, I want to get your take on it because I want to fight behind you and work with you moving forward. Well, what you just mentioned is true, I think, with most of us. All of us know someone or have a family member who has been impacted by this, by the opioid epidemic. We all know someone or we all have a family member who has been impacted by this. 115 people every day in our country are dying because of opioid addiction. 115 people. More. I've always described... Under, under, you know, they're not caught by the medical examiner, especially if a physician goes in there and just signs off. Exactly. I'm sure that the number is much higher. You're exactly right. And, and you know, you, you look in the paper and I tell you, one of the most um, appalling statistics, if you will, or points that I've ever heard was that there are actually some families who would rather in a, an obituary have it listed as a suicide rather than an addiction. Yep. I mean, that's the point we've gotten to here. We have to recognize that this is a disease. It's a disease that has to be treated. And I've always tried to, to frame the opioid issue as being a two-part problem. And that is, one is somewhat tangible. And that is, how do you decrease the number of pills? How do you decrease the number of prescriptions? Now, we can kind of get our arms around that. We can limit the number of pills that are given and limit the number of prescriptions that are written. But then the second problem is is to me a, a much more difficult problem to get our arms around. And that is, what do you do with those two and a half million people who are currently addicted? I mean, let's face it. We all know that addiction is a lifelong challenge. We all know that some programs work for some people and others work for other people. So identifying the program that's going to work for someone is often difficult. And it's not just a matter of throwing money at it. Uh, you know, some of my colleagues think, oh, if we can only get to $9 billion and we got it solved. Well, we know better than that. We know that we've got to have programs that work. We've got to help these people. We need them. We need them in our society to, to be productive members of our society. Right now, we've got one of the lowest unemployment rates we've had in years, and we need them back in our workforce. Um, we, we need to help them. Uh, aside from just the moral responsibility of helping them, we need them. Well, what are your thoughts? And, and this kind of gate, uh, brings me into my other um, thought, but what are your thoughts basically on these manufacturers that are jumping in and then you know, I mean, let's, let's be honest. There's places where pay for play is of evidence, right? And, you know, you get companies that go in and are the solution, but there are, there are alternatives that cost a lot less in many cases, but those people or those companies end up being placed into legislation specifically. Do you, I mean, do you agree? Obviously I know you don't agree with that, but do you agree that's the way it should stand? And then, and we work in that capitalist market, or do you even think that there could be, um, you know, where FDA gives, um, uh, royalties to certain companies like they have in the past to face a public health issue? Well, certainly I am open to all suggestions. I mean, I, I'm, as, as a member of the Energy and Commerce Committee, I serve on the Health Subcommittee and on the Oversight and Investigations Committee. And we are the two subcommittees that have been attacking this problem. We've been the tip of the spear of it. First of all, in the Health Subcommittee, obviously we've addressed the, the opioid epidemic in a number of ways and what we can do to help people to, to break this 
addiction and to, to fight this addiction, how we can limit the number of, of pills, how we can uh, educate physicians and other healthcare professionals on the danger of these medications. We've also, in the Oversight and Investigations Committee, done our work in making sure that we are um, reviewing what has happened and investigating what's happened, including, you know, um, distributors. Um, are they reporting the way that they should be? Are, are we, we've got situations where, uh, you know, we had a West Virginia pharmacy that was sent millions of pills for, a, uh, for of hydrocodone over a period of time for four, for a city of 4,000 people. I mean, you know, that's just, um, that, that's unacceptable. Um, the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers need to be held responsible. The, um, you know, pharmacists, rogue doctors, well, all of us have a point. The whole system. We, that's we, exactly we, right. Failure. At the end of the day, we've had a system. It, it, it has been. Yeah. I, you I, you I, are absolutely correct. I, well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because you're sitting in a conversation with people and, and you get the, a lot of advocates that are saying, let's go after the, the manufacturers. And then there's a side that says, not all manufacturers create opioids, right? So we have to specify who. Right. Then we have to specify the bad apples, which we know there's bad apple physicians because a lot of people want to go after physicians. That's not the case. We love our physicians. We don't want to go after our, bad, our, our good pharmacists that actually educate. We want to help them and, and, and encourage them and build them resources. I know we only have a, a little bit of time left. I'm sorry to cut, cut this short, but I want to get a, a few uh, quick statements from you about ACA. I know you were um, a, an opponent of the Affordable Care uh, act in, in, in its current form. Just can you give me an idea? I know it's very complex, so please don't let me simplify this. But can you give me an idea of some of the things that you would like to see in a new health care plan moving forward? Well, first of all, if you look at the American Health Care Act that came out of the health subcommittee that I serve on, that came out of the energy and, Cer and commerce committee that I serve on, you'll see that we adopted some of the good things that are uh, part of the American, uh, of, of the ACA. And, and for instance, we we won't, we made sure that we were covering pre-existing conditions. That Love was it. one of the prerequisites. You're the man. You are the man. Listen. Well, Love we've got to cover pre-existing conditions. To. We acknowledge that. We also said, hey, we like what the ACA did with allowing 26-year-olds to stay on their parents' insurance until they get to be 26. We, we like that. We included it in that. But we do feel like there has to be some Medicaid reform. We do feel like we've got to have competition within healthcare. Listen, that's the only way we're ever going to bring prices down is to have competition. Instead of having insurance companies that we're begging to stay in the system, we need to have insurance companies knocking on your door, wanting your business. They need to be begging for your business. We need competition. That's what we tried to create with the American Healthcare Act. And that's where I think the biggest failing of the ACA is. And and I do feel like it's a failed experiment that needs to be repealed and we need to replace it. And we have chipped away at it, if you will. And I think we are beginning to see some of the positive benefits of that. Well, it's very sad that uh, you have to be the educator for many of your colleagues for healthcare because it is a very complex subject. And a lot of times these things come across certain committees and they just get signed off or on based on their own beliefs or feelings towards a pro certain political party. But I know with you, you're about public health. I, I completely understand that, especially with what we've talked about today. Uh, it, it's been a huge blessing to have you on the show. Uh, I do look forward to reaching back out to you. If you don't mind, uh, I will be bugging you. Oh, please. And I want to come visit with you. We actually bring our students. I'm at NSU College of Pharmacy. We bring our students every year to DC because we think it's important for individuals to be part of the solution rather than complaining or knocking at the door and trying to get a seat. We want to we actually set the table. So I would love to work well, with thank you, you forward. 
Thank you. Thank you for being on Polititalk Rx. And what a wonderful show. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you have a great week, weekend. And, uh, and I look forward to talking with you soon. You as well. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great day. Thank you so much, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Polititalk Rx, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. If you're in the profession of pharmacy or if you're in the healthcare industry, you can't afford to sit idle and not be informed about your profession. We ask you to share these podcasts with your fellow pharmacy associates, your state and local government officials, and get involved in politics in some capacity, starting with being informed. We must take action, but only when we're educated and understand the issues and policies which lead us to a better tomorrow for our profession. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Polititalk Rx and send us an email at polititalkrx at gmail.com.